Hey, I am Grant Vickery. And I'm Grant Overman. And this is our podcast, Two Dads Named Grant, where we're trying to talk about what it's going to take to be a good dad and occasionally a good husband if it comes up in the 21st century. Yeah, absolutely. We are doing that. And we have a topic that is defined. I wouldn't say if it's well defined for tonight, (laughs) but I think we may come around to one by the end of the episode. I think so. Well, we and we've talked about it a lot already just between the two of us and that's part of the problem in deciding on the topic is we've moved. We've covered a lot of ground. So for you and me it's going to be rehashing a little bit and hopefully we'll find kind of a a common thread there. I think our sure. key term for the night is probably meta narrative or grand narrative or maybe just narrative. I don't know. If we want to get a little bit simpler yeah. there. Does that seem like a fair key term to you? I think I think it is. I think narrative in our discussions um, about what we wanted to talk about tonight that came up and seemed to be the central theme running through all the different subjects we t- touched on. Yeah, and this this just occurred to me, but it might too be easier to call it an archetype. Um, that might be a term that people are more familiar with, um, although it does that does kind of bring up images of Jung, and we're not talking specifically about Jungian archetypes, but more archetypes in general, and specifically uh, masculine archetypes, both good and bad. And uh, uh, you and I definitely have some some differences of opinion on individual responsibility in the face of archetypes, I think. And I think we come down in odd places. So uh, you are the guy with the psych background. I'm the guy with the, the comp rep background, the background that no one knows exists, I don't think. Um, <laughs> but what uh, uh, so when you're talking about an archetype or when you're talking about a narrative uh, that someone might live into, um, what does that mean to you from from your perspective and your sort of uh, uh, training and background? Yeah, I think that there are a couple of different things that just kind of come to mind immediately. I mean, again, Carl Jung is the big one, I think, with those kind of universal or semi-universal unconscious archetypes that leak mm-hmm. into our conscious and our, you know, communal cultural narratives. So again, you could even impose impose a structure on it. So we'll probably jump around in terms a whole lot. But I think if I'm trying to define it a little more narrowly, when I talk about an archetype or a narrative, I think it's the experience or the phenomenon of kind of putting yourself in a story, setting yourself on a, on a path that you're trying to follow, especially if it's an example of someone else. And I also think, too, it brings up a lot of Carl Rogers for me, this idea of you know congruency and is what you feel and seek and desire internally what you're experiencing what's coming out in your life externally um, okay i think that that's where a lot of this comes from too and so we compare ourselves to an archetype or a narrative or um something like that and we think you know how is this like me how is this unlike me i want to be more like that or that's not how i feel inside um especially when we're talking about just whether it's raising sons or being a man, I think a lot, that's a something we'll hit on a lot is this idea of I compare myself to this external archetype and then that's not sure. how I see myself inside. And is that what I want to be? Is it not? And so that idea of congruency that those two things would be equal from Carl Rogers right. is when you're where that comes up a lot for me. Pro- projection of yourself and your internal perception of yourself. Is that what you would say is congruency? Definitely. Yeah. That when those things are as similar as possible, you are a okay. congruent person and that's when you're at your healthiest according to Carl Rogers. Gotcha. That, that makes sense to me. Um, one quick thing, if you, could you move your mic just a little bit closer to your mouth? Cause you are cutting out a little bit again. Um, yes, absolutely. Missing some of which that's, that's better. Thank you. The other thing, um, or for, for, from my perspective, because I work in English and I have a lot of contact with lit study people, or lit studies people. So when I when I think of narrative, I'm obviously thinking of a story, which is both how it's used within the discipline and colloquially, right? That's not it's not a, a secret. Yes. Um, it's not some like big fancy term. But as as far as an an archetypal narrative or a narrative that functions like an archetype or creates an expectation, um, to me this is about uh, reification or how the story uh, functions predictively. So if you think of like the the story of the the tortoise and the hare, right? This is a story about like uh, uh, the the message is perseverance pays off, right? Hard work trumps talent is the essentially the message of that story, right? The hare sure. is lazy and falls asleep, so the tortoise wins, right? And so if you in, you take that story in and you internalize that narrative because you've been told that story, and you don't have to necessarily 
even analyze it or recognize you've internalized it. You can just be read that story a number of times and it becomes something that you say, okay, this is real. And then you meet someone who's more talented than you, but you outwork them and beat them. Then you have reified the story, right? It's become sure. realer to you. It's become more. You've concrete. lived it out, maybe. You, yeah, well, you've you've lived it out, and so that means that you believe it. It's not just a story now. Now it's it's a, a moral or a life lesson. It's it's an inter- it's a part of who you are, and it's a part of your worldview, which is a part of your meta narrative or your grand narrative. And so, sure, which just yeah, to interject, yeah, I think that going back to psychology, I think that's a pretty standard um, assumption or model for thinking about people is that people's behavior tells us more sometimes than what their words do. Uh, not always, you know, but like it, like you said, if you, what you truly believe is how you're going to act out what your behavior does. And so if we were going to try to nail down whether it was values or morals or narratives and archetypes in this case that are important and valuable to you would be the ones that you were acting out, not necessarily the ones you claim to be following or say are most important to you. Right. I would say that the the narratives that you claim are your defining narratives or the narratives that are your archetypal or meta narratives, your grand narratives or grand narrative, I think is more appropriate. The ones you claim are yours are the ones that are, uh, they are the narratives of the group to which you wish to belong, not necessarily what you personally feel. And so yeah. you can you can claim a narrative and by claiming it be a part of a group even if you don't actually believe that. Although we're we're talking really abstractly though. Um, sure. And I do I I, I do want to sink back into something a little more concrete. So within the context of masculinity, what would you say are were some of not are necessarily but were some of the dominant narratives that men and boys tend tended to try and live into? Sure. I think probably the biggest and most obvious one that occurs to me, given my conservative Christian background, you know, specifically Church of Christ, and you'll be familiar with this since we went to the exact same church for most of our we lives. Did. Yes, you um, went to my church. That's right. <laughs> that's true. Your dad owned it because when you're the preacher, you own the church. That's uh, a, I'm yeah, giving that's that how understand. That works. Uh, and you don't and pay so, taxes when you're a preacher. That's maybe the best reason to become one. That's right. One could argue. Um, so that narrative of the man an adult man is the spiritual leader of the group around him like you are supposed to be someone that people follow in the vein i would say of you know abraham isaac jacob moses the prophets like going all the way back into old testament up through the you know these people Mm -hmm. that follow Mm -hmm. and you know jesus was a rabbi which is a tradition of people you know he wasn't the only one with disciples people followed there so you're trying to live up to this example right you're trying to follow this narrative of i will learn the correct path i will mark it out for those that follow behind me um and i will be an example through my words and actions for those around me and in our tradition your family then your wife and your children are probably central to that not the only but the most important you're kind of judged by that standard first i would say yeah, and that, that's that's not not to get overly religious, but two points on that. One, that the health of your family is a biblical standard for becoming a church leader in the New Testament, right? The 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 churches right. that Paul writes to are instructed to find men who lead their families well, right? So if you've got some terrible child, then that that could preempt you from church service, according to I think it's Paul. It could be someone else, and sure. you know the author of the those epistles is up in the air as well. The other thing that I wanted to comment on is, especially with the people that you named, um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, uh, that I think is a positive, and I won't say this too terribly often actually, but it's a positive (laughs) narrative laid out by the Bible, is that many of those men are archetypally flaw-first leaders, if that makes sense. That what is their defining characteristic is a flaw, and then they achieve in spite of that. And I think that a lot of sure. what we might call a negative narrative for men is you have to be uh, impervious, right? You have to be flawless. And to sure. show a sign of weakness or to show a mistake is bad. And those are characters that within their own narratives are initially uh, defined or at some point primarily defined by a major flaw. And I think that's an interesting uh, um I think that's an interesting narrative to hold on to because everybody's going to have a major defining flaw, right? You're going to have sure, that. man, yeah. woman, whoever, you know. Um, yeah, I definitely so think I, that would be. I, I appreciate that about. Those yeah, characters. I think that's the biggest one I can think. I mean, there's obviously lots of others. But I'm curious to think if you had another one that seemed prominent to you. Uh, specifically, a, a biblical 
narrative? No, not necessarily just, again, like, you know, a narrative of uh, masculinity or what it meant to be a real man or a good man or something like that. Um, yeah, Again, your dad I, I was a preacher, that... so those were probably pretty prominent in your house, but, you know. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think that uh, let's go with the phrase real man here. Um, because I think good man, you know, defining good is so complicated, but when we're talking about a quote unquote real man, then there's sort of a set standard that we can, um, a a stereotype that we can talk about a little bit more easily than good. Right. And so when you say real man, the, the idea that comes to mind is someone who is strong, like the strong silent type, right. Who is emotionally stable and who says things unironically like my word is my bond. You know, and they right, mean it, exactly. right? Um, who, when they go to a farm, know how to, like, fix a tractor, even though they were raised in, you know, suburbia or something. I don't know. They drive sure. a nail in one hit. The The person that is within a sitcom, the guy who makes the boyfriend of the uh, female lead feel very insecure. Um, sure. That that kind of person. So, to, to me, I would say the archetype, and I'm having trouble thinking of a... Well, okay. Here's a, here's a character that no one's who might ever listen will be able to relate to. So I've been watching, rewatching. I'll admit I've seen all of it, Gilmore Girls with my wife. Um, and the character of Luke is to me very much the archetypal man. He wasn't very good at school. He doesn't dress very fancy. He's constantly grumpy and gruff. But he is always somehow, I would say... Um, emotionally supportive in a consistent way right so Mm -hmm. to me the archetypal man is not a man of letters or a man of words but is rather someone who is like that consistency that's that's what would be archetypal to me or that's the narrative that i would say is that to be a man i have to show up every single day right yeah dependability yes yeah very much so very much you are the my definition ford or the chevy depending on whatever your family drives right Right. Uh, yeah. But in human form, you are you have all the torque <laughs> that you'll ever need, or that anyone would ever need, and you are there to apply it in any sort of, you know, atmospheric conditions or road conditions or anything that might come up. You are equipped for the job, um, in that same sort of rugged, right readiness. Um, that yeah, is available. I, I, I like, yeah. That's 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 the narrative that I think of most, which it's a it's hard to point to because it's so common. And I think especially if you look at media, um, any television shows, books, um, or movies that are coming out in the mid to late 90s and then early 2000s, your male lead is likely going to be a stoic but um, consistent and supportive male. You're not going to get... Uh, uh, you're not going to get Chris Pat- Pratt in the mid '90s, right? Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking of. The yeah. Chris Pratt, yeah, because who is Chris- who has those same qualities underlying, maybe, but it's got that kind of humor and uh, yeah, there's a self deprecation now. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Right. Um, so that's- why do you think that is? Because that's that's true of of almost every dad or male lead that you see now in in media. Um, why, why do you think there's been the transition to this kind of aggressive self-deprecation, the Phil Dunphying of men, I would I would think of? Oh, man, Phil Dunphy. Okay, I was trying to think of an example of that kind of thing, and I, I, don't, I love that show. I don't know why I didn't think of Phil Dunphy. Um, I would say a lot of these things to me, you know, they kind of go in cycles, and they're very seemingly reactionary. I guess you could call it proactive if you have some sort of counter-narrative or just certain idea or ideal you're trying to put out there, you might it might be more active and less reactive. But, I, you know, again, going against that, I mean, just over time you kind of see, you know, if you have your um, Humphrey Bogarts, you know, that give way to somebody who seems to appear to be a little bit more sensitive, and then now we've gone too sensitive, so we have to come back to our Harrison Ford or whatever, right? And then, you know, that's too much, so now we have to be, you know, less confident, more whatever. And I don't, I, I say that slightly derisively, I know with that tone, I don't mean mm-hmm. that. There's not. I don't think all of that is true. Um, if we want to sit here and talk about Phil Dunphy, I think Phil Dunphy is a great example of a lot of things that are positive um, or positive See, examples I, of being I, a dad I actually like that. view Phil Dunphy pretty negatively. Um, I think overall I would – it just depends on what light you're looking at him in. I think I would agree overall, but there are other qualities of his that I would say – and this will – 
you know, everyone's got some good bad qualities, usually sure. fictional people. And, but, and, and Phil Dunphy's not a consistent character because he's been a victim of flanderization pretty seriously, right? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, well, So if we, exactly. if we talk about early Phil Dunphy, I can say this is prop. I, I'm more okay with that representation of fatherhood where it's like I'm going to try to take an equal or even supportive role. But later Phil Dunphy is, to me, just serially in – he's another child. And that, to me, is – also represented pretty frequently, um, mostly in commercials for cleaning products targeted towards women. But the um, <laughs> the the husband character or the 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 father character is displayed as essentially another one of the children, and that to me is oh that that drives me nuts. Sure. Well, and I think that's a good segue into so we talk, we were talking in general. What's an example, right, of mm-hmm. these kind of narratives, and we didn't really assign any kind of value to them, but that's I true. think that this is a good time to kind of start talking about positive and negative ones. Cause I think they both exist maybe within the same character or example. Um, it's really hard for me this to try to nail down what is positive or negative. If I'm picking one overall, because I think you can find, especially in popular media, a lot to criticize, even when there's stuff to like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think just as a disclaimer, and I don't think we've claimed this, but in case it wasn't clear, and when we talk about whether, something we've experienced or something that we see as positive or negative, you know, that's not going to be true for everybody all of the time. And, you know, I would say one of the characteristics of a bad narrative, and you could talk about this, I think better than I can is when you try to apply it forever at all time to everybody, to every situation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, that's just impossible to do, right. If you're, and, and so well, that, uh, yeah, talk a little depends. bit about that, I think. Um, so if you're, if you're going to say that a narrative applies universally, that's what we would think of as a meta narrative or a grand narrative. And there are some grand narratives that actually obtain or function. So for instance, if I said, let's meet at three o'clock, um, then what you would say is okay. And neither of us would question the fact that calling a certain time of day, three o'clock is arbitrary. It's an invention. It's essentially a story we tell about time. Because the day is not actually divided into 24 units. And so sure. we tell this story about time. We share this grand narrative about time. And it functions so so deeply that if I go to China and find someone who speaks English and ask them for the time of day, they can tell me in a way that I understand, right? We, right. we share the same classification of time. Um, we share a Gregorian calendar. And, and I know that some places have slightly different calendars. I'm not saying that, that we don't. But... Um, that's a, that's a grand narrative or a meta narrative. And I would, I I see, I'm a little bit more prescriptivist about this, or I I believe a little bit more in the Jungian idea of the collective unconscious, that there are certain narratives we're predisposed to believe or not, not just believe that are predisposed to, to resonate with us. And so I would believe that there are some narratives which can apply to everyone, um, but I would not attach to those narratives a positive or negative value. I would attach both positive and negative, that they have positive manifestations and negative manifestations. So that's kind of where I come down on it. Sure. I think if we're getting to something a little more specific or even culturally loaded, right? I mean, there obviously there are biological or even emotional behavioral trends that we see across different cultures in genders and age demographics and all that kind of stuff but general you know something about these kind of things are a little bit more complicated is not the right word but maybe that's the right word or less precise or less utilitarian okay so if uh uh, tell me if i'm understanding you correctly you're saying there's a difference between my example of a meta narrative that applies to something that's non-sentient or non-conscious like time and a meta narrative or a narrative that applies to something that is sentient or conscious and dynamic and changes like a like a human being or or a specific gender is that an accurate um yeah that's definitely accurate and i would think my goal is one just to avoid the trap of trying to build something that's going to cover all the bases right because Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Then you've got the um, what's the example? The camel is a horse designed by committee, right? Or whatever you're trying to accomplish too many things and have <laughs> right, too much input right. into it. Yeah. But also to as a disclaimer to say 
we're talking about our opinions or our experiences or something like that, and we're not trying to say, well, this is going to be useful for everybody in every situation. Maybe it's just useful for us, or maybe the process uh, yeah, of yeah. thinking about what narratives speak to you, what narratives are good to insert yourself into or to follow in the footsteps of or whatever you know, turn yes. of phrase you want to use are going to be different. Although, you know, I think it's pretty obvious there are some certain ones that appeal to a large group of people. I mean, I think most people are going to be familiar with what we're talking about. I would say especially the negative ones, just because that's a pretty Mm -hmm. big cultural topic right now in our moment, is kind of these negative male stereotypes, patterns, behaviors, Mm -hmm. and then by that extension, narratives that we um, put ourselves into. Yeah. find ourselves in might be a better way of saying it. Yeah, so so talk to me specifically a little bit, because we've talked about this some, and we differ here a little bit. But when you're talking about um, negative male narratives, which are currently in the public eye, what exactly do you mean? Because I'm curious about this from, from two perspectives. First, which ones do you think are in the public eye? And second, which ones do you think are in the are are negative that's the the sort of combination that i'm interested in yeah okay so this is something that is a very interesting topic to me and i did want to talk to this and get your opinion on how you feel about this because so the term like toxic masculinity i think is kind of the umbrella term for all of this right it's this idea that which you know implies that there's non-toxic masculinity, whatever that is, just by the name of it. Not that any masculinity is bad, that there's some sort of positive way of conducting yourself in a masculine way. But um, I would say you know that kind of st- things like sexual and domestic violence, things like social inequality, you know the glass ceiling or the patriarchy, it might be called, um, you know things like that. Just male dominance of certain spheres of public and private life. On a societal whole, there, you know, like I said, there's always exceptions to that kind of thing. And no, sure. I, what I want your opinion on, because this is me, I hear the term toxic masculinity, and I don't know if it's a personal issue or if it's because I'm assuming things about someone that would use that kind of term that rub me the wrong way or whatever. But I hear that, and my it gets my back up. Probably also just because I'm a man and I'm lumped in and I have toxic masculinity, and no one wants to feel like they're bad. That's probably the real reason. Uh, and so it's not that I think that doesn't exist, but I think that it kind of gives me a like it makes my skin crawl a little bit to hear hear it. But then you know if we talk about things like the long-standing acceptance and of sexual violence or sexual harassment from men against women and the kind of dismissal of claims against that. I mean, we're having a pretty serious cultural moment in that specifically mm-hmm. right now about where yeah. are we, where, how's the right way to conduct yourself and how do we treat people with respect and you know, what's the way to get around that? So we're talking about a negative narrative right there. The idea that, you know, men just walk around abusing their power, not thinking about how it affects other people or actively saying I can get around with doing this and it's in a very kind of aggressive sexual kind of like male power kind of way because that's a pretty um common male uh i mean they we just tend to a be more aggressive in general right or whatever and this right. is the kind of sexual fantasies or idea i mean that's just i mean that kind of sexual not necessarily predation but just you're typically the pursuer, not always, right? And that kind of for and this is like the bad. You've gone so right. far that you don't care what's going on or something like that. So that'd be like an example. There's more than that, I would say. Yeah. But, so I, I think I can answer to a degree why you would say that it puts your back up to hear the term toxic masculinity. And this goes back to a guy named um, Richard Weaver, who is a rhetorician from the mid 20th century, mid and late 20th century, who talks about God terms and devil terms. And so his examples are American is a God term and communist is a devil term in the 1960s. So if something is as American as apple pie, we're saying that it's a really good thing. And if we're calling something uh, a pinko commie, that's a bad thing. Now, this assumes a kind of shared narrative or meta narrative about Americanism and communism, right? Sure. And so if we say something is toxic masculinity, the idea behind a devil term like toxic masculinity is you don't actually have to evaluate it. Uh, it's assumed to be bad. Anything onto which you put that label is necessarily bad. And so you skip a whole level of analysis or critical thinking. And so let's say you have a difference of opinion with a coworker and they see an opportunity to say you're behaving like someone who is a toxic male. This is just toxic masculinity. Well, maybe it's not. 
right? And I'm not saying that toxic masculinity isn't real. There's a different thing, that, right? That's that's sure. different. It's real. It's real and it's terrible. I'm not saying yes. it's not real, but the label alone is enough to end an argument or to end a discussion. And so I, th- I think it kind of puts the fear of God in a lot of people, right? Like, do I really want to disagree with this person who I know has this arsenal of McCarthyist terms in their tool belt and can throw them at me? And the answer is generally no, because you put yourself at great social and personal risk. Um, So it does put a lot of people's backs up. I think that's true. The other side of it. um, Brooks, no argument. I would, yeah. Yes. I would think that accurately describes the feeling. Um, Not that I want to argue that workplace sexual harassment is okay um, or something like that, you know, pick an example or whatever, but. Right. And of course, which is is a horrible thing and not what I'm talking about. Right. right. And that's, and it's, this is related to the the second frustrating thing about it, which is calling it masculine at all is a reversal of terms. Because I think for a huge portion of history, um, like if, if you go back to the Victorian era, um, the word masculine, like if you said, I feel masculine love for him, right? You could say that as a guy. And the word masculine just meant like deeply felt and real. Right. And so if you if you go into or manly rather, um, not masculine, but manly. Um, so you would you would say of your male friends, I feel manly love for you. And that nobody took that to mean anything homosexual. Not that there would be anything wrong with that at all. Um, right. Sure. One thing we can say about the Victorians is they had a lot of sex with everyone, irrespective of gender. Um, <laughs> right. By- Byron got with everybody. Uh, so. <laughs> So uh, uh, I feel like it's an assault to call masculinity toxic. I don't think it's inaccurate, but I think it does assault my view of masculinity as something that's good, right? Because I was was raised to think that being manly was about protection and consistency and comfort and, and traits that I think are not exclusively male now that I'm older, but are exclusively good. And sure. so it is, I think it is a, it's a big ask. And I don't think a lot of people realize it. It's a big ask to take somebody raised in a conservative environment and say, some of these behaviors, which are predatory or cruel or violent are inherently stereotype, not just stereotypically, but are statistically and in a real way male. And yes. you need to, you need to acknowledge that and then be cautioned against it. And it's like, that's that's a big ask because you're asking somebody to shift their perception a lot. So that I, I struggle with that. It's hard to me, but I do think it is, it's real. And that's about as liberal as you're going to get me to be on this show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, see, I think that's a really important thing to talk about because if, you know, if we want to talk about negative narratives, and I think one of those is that if you are a man in the United States of any age, but definitely above a certain age, it is presumed that you, I wouldn't say just benefit from privilege because I mean, you know, there's a scale from the literal poorest person on earth all the way up to whoever the most well-off person or most privileged person. And, you know, everyone's on there somewhere. And so, you know, there's a difference between saying you have benefited from a privilege passively you know you just lived the life you were born into you know to the best of your ability i don't think people are mad necessarily about that maybe some are but um maybe not mad at the individual maybe mad at the world that has created inequality right but you look at someone you say if you're a man of a certain age in this country you likely or are currently or have always been guilty of you know taking advantage of others but especially women putting yourself in a position to be in power over others for no other reason than because you're you're a man and you know a lot of your opinions about things or the way you interact with people are colored by that and again like you're saying it's not that that's not true to a certain extent but i think in the context of okay if i'm going to correct that narrative or find a different narrative to follow like what's going to be the positive aspect you know the the positive Mm -hmm. aspects i'm going to look for because especially if i'm thinking about looking my son and i'm teaching him how to be raised well if i'm buying into that this is a negative narrative that a lot of men all of us maybe to a certain extent are living out in our country and have for decades if not the entire existence of it you know not talking about it and hoping it goes away or being like, well, let me just tell you the right things and not talk about this bad thing seems like a bad idea. But at the same time, if I don't have something positive to replace that with, that's a good thing. And I feel sometimes 
maybe this is just when I'm in a moment of weakness and I read or watch cable news or am on social <laughs> media, which I try not to frequent for this very kind of thing. It's right. not good for nuanced discussion, obviously, but also you see a lot of this overreaction and outrage that's just – it. we're throwing out the whole concept, right? There's no such thing as good masculinity. There's toxic masculinity, and the less masculine you can be, the farther you're going to wave, you're going to stray from all these toxic things. So just be as, you know, little masculine or as little, uh, be the least manly you possibly can be because all those things are bad. Or you're getting into dangerous territory even if you're doing it. You know, as to say, like, I like to be aggressive or I like rough and tumble play or I'm a man's man. Like, guys that are like that, it's like, well, there's all this other stuff we're probably assuming about you about these things too. And it's not, like you said, it's not that that's not true because, like, we can't deny statistics. To a certain extent, you know, men are right. more aggressive ne- and yeah. Do ne- that neither stuff of us badly, is so. denying the reality of biology, and yeah. and I think that's an important aspect because there is a contingent of people who are a very vocal minority who would argue that even biology is socially constructed. Which, if you want to argue the very long term evolutionary uh, or evolutionary biological claim that biology is socially constructed, fine. It's still biology, and if you want to change it, you have to wait a hundred or you know a quarter of a million years, right? So, right. so okay, let's not even have that debate. Let's not have the quarter of a million year debate about right. about biology. But I think you're exactly right that there becomes this kind of absence for what non toxic masculinity would be in an attempt to to label everything that is toxic masculinity. There is a, a new absence, and. I, I find that so ahistorical. It's it's really it's really odd when you look at at history and all the things we think of as masculine, because um, for for a lot of history, and this is specifically be, uh, due to um, women not being treated equally, right? So I'm not saying this is good. I'm just this is a this is a product of patriarchal thinking, which is negative right. and toxic masculinity. But like all of your poets and authors. And all of your artists are male, right? And right. so these are the people that are going to be doing things like writing about emotions. And so it becomes assumed that men experience emotions deeper. Now, this is, of course, a fallacy. It's it's totally wrong. The reason that it seems like men experience emotions more deeply than do women is because men have the luxury of experiencing their emotions because they're part of the the ruling class in the pre-Victorian era, right? So mm. I'm not saying that it's I'm not saying that it's a reality, but I'm saying that there's a reverse assumption to what we have now. Now it's assumed that women are emotional. Then then it was assumed that women were cold and calculating and and not emotional. Right. Right. And, and so so it's it's completely the reverse. So ideas of masculinity have already shifted, but now we're in another period of shifting masculinity and we have sort of the pendulum swing away from the Victorian idea, uh, you know, Tennyson and Poe writing to each other what are just shy of love letters about how great each other's poetry is. Um, that that manly is what is good and womanly is bad. And it's swinging the other way to manly is what is bad and womanly is good and i don't think that i think you have to a acknowledge the historical problem and pain and resulting systemic issue of assigning good with manly and also acknowledge that that doesn't mean that going to the other extreme is good because i i don't think you can and i'm unwilling to right i'm unwilling to for for my own sake uh, selfishly and for the sake of like if if my wife's child is a boy right I, right I, I'm not I'm not willing to do that I'm not willing to say by the way I'm gonna punish you for the sins of my ancestors or for my sins I'm not gonna do that because I don't think that's fair and so I do think there's a, a real need for a narrative and I think it comes from from the past and some has to be reinvented of what does yeah. positive masculinity look like what is yeah. what is good maleness or manliness, quote unquote? Sure, and so that brings up another thought and a specific example to bring it down to a more kind of focused level from the abstract. Although I think this abstract talk is great because I think it couple, it sets the context for what we're talking about. This is something that in the 18 months my son has been alive, I have thought about multiple times and kind of struggled with. And prior to him being alive when I think about, okay, this is the kind of dad I want to be. And there were many times that I did this beforehand, less so after he's been born, because it is 
constantly amazing to me how much of a stereotypical little boy he is uh-huh. in his just daily going through the earth that, I mean, I don't remember from being that young. I don't feel like I was like that. I probably was <laughs> right up until a certain age when I discovered, when I learned to read and then I was like, I don't ever want to go outside or get dirty or do anything again because I'm just going to read these books. Um, but this idea that like, okay, well, I don't want to force my son to be one way or the other, which is a good right. thing, right? Yeah. But it's like, I don't want to, he doesn't have to play with these kind of toys or those kind of toys and whatever's going to happen, it's going to be okay. And there's no good or bad, or there's no value to those things intrinsically. It's just whatever it is, the, it is. The things about gender, which are socially constructed are norms, but they're not valuative. So you can sure. ignore them and handle the hardship that comes from being an oddball later on. I would agree. Yes. Yeah. Right. And so I, and, and, I, and I get that, but then when I, play with my son and when he's alive in the world and he's a real person and not just this like idea of a child that may have some time in the future. Mm -hmm. And the child loves to climb on stuff and jump off of it. He's not very good at the jumping part yet. It's more of a leaning (laughs) onto me as I kind of catch him. He loves to throw things. Anything that makes a loud noise is great. Yeah. Um, you know, I, you know, it's just, I'm sure you love that. Yeah. It's, (laughs) you know, it goes right along with, you know, and I, and that's the thing. I feel this joy, that yeah. just comes from me because, and the only thing I can think about describing it is being a little boy, you know, and I'm a big boy now, you know, <laughs> like, and I get to do that as the bigger one with my, you know, but like, I feel that childlike joy and that like, it just makes me feel very like manly sounds weird to say because we're doing little kid games, you know, and we're yelling or I'm scaring him or I'm horsing around with him or I'm throwing him up in the air, you know, to where it's almost a little bit scary, but he loves it too at the same time. Sure. And I mean, I am married to a woman who was like that as a little girl. Okay. Who uh-huh. loved who has told me more than once that there were times as a small child that she was like, man, I wish I could just be a boy so I could go play all these like rough and tumble and blah, whatever. And people would just get over it and wouldn't treat me any differently. It would be fine. Right. And shouldn't she have been able to, right? She should have. Right. But I don't think I feel like I should apologize or feel like I'm doing a disservice to her and her gender by celebrating the masculinity and having these kind of moments with my son. And it doesn't mean she can't do those things too. She does that with him too, Mm -hmm. you know, and I have tender moments with my son as well. that are not stereotypically. So there's obviously crossover there, but yeah, what you're talking about where you th- you know you you shift so far the other way where there's nothing good about it. We're gonna categorically say it's bad. I feel like okay, well now I've I would have had to let go of that or lose that. And I think that on a very real level, that's why I struggle with this kind of idea of okay, well we got to just completely reject everything that is traditionally masculine mm-hmm. because it leads us to a toxic and bad and harmful place. And I think there's got to be some sweet spot there, right? Where sure, sure. we can acknowledge these real dangers to not controlling and understanding these parts of yourselves, right? And the complete rejection of all of those things and for you to feel guilty that you may have been born to be like that. And then I think kind of tied up in that, that you'd be guilty if you don't feel like that. You know, if you are the kind of young man, old man, you know, whatever stage of life you're in that doesn't identify with this idea to, you know, compete and you know again like i'm just talking about like the running around in the rough housing and doing and i wasn't like that for a lot of my childhood at one point i was but I, you know but mm-hmm. i didn't like it as much i might have liked horsing around with my dad but i was a miserable failure at football because in practice i was worried <laughs> i was going to hurt my teammates by tackling them i mean that you, yes, you can't I'll, function as a I'll football player if you're problems worried about hurting that you people. and i didn't share as children right and Alex. so and, and so this is the very real internal battle that i feel on an almost daily basis yeah. is Where's the line of celebrating my son's boyness, but also, you know, not, you know, teaching him, okay, like, you know, that's too much. And I, that's probably an essential function of dads all over the world, right? Is like, you know, how to, you know, to use the example, the metaphor, you know, how do I wrestle figuratively and literally without it becoming something that's too much, you know, like where's the, where's the line where it's playful. And then, you know, especially you have a brother. So you did this more than I did. Cause I only have yeah. sisters where you wrestle and it's all fine until someone hits somebody or pins somebody a little too hard. And then it becomes an actual fight. Right. And that was, all, I was always that. the one who was hit too hard. Yeah. Because you're also <laughs> the old, like we should know that you're the oldest, right? Right. Um, and so you always had a, a physical and size uh, advantage. So you were always in reserve, which I think plays into, um, your your football example, right? You were worried you would <laughs> sure. hurt someone because when you learned to play, you always had to be worried you would hurt someone. I didn't have... Uh, so 
when I when I did wrestling in high school uh, or not high school but middle school and and then did some fighting later on in controlled environments um, very controlled environments <laughs> there's something that I observed that I commented on that other people comment on as well and it seems to be a general consensus is that younger siblings have a killer instinct because when you're right. younger you don't actually have to control especially like for me I'm almost three years younger than my brother and even as an adult he's much larger than I am like he's taller mm-hmm. and stronger than I am so I was always smaller and weaker and so I could literally try to end his life and I did <laughs> right I, I tried to kill him um, I wanted to kill him and I tried to, and that, that was how I learned to play sort of. So then when it comes to like fighting people, my own size in middle school, uh, you know, there's a difference between the aggression levels. So sure. I, I think that first of all, that was a beautiful example, um, Thank you. of, of what we're talking about. And like, I'm, I'm, I'm over here just like, you know, I'm, I'm doing the wavy thing at my face. Um, but, uh, <laughs> It's a, it's a beautiful example, and I think that it's it's especially poignant because you talked about how uh, Michelle will do those things as well, right? And so when we talk about a positive version of masculinity, I think it's important to note, and this is one of the additions to the narrative that I think is necessary, mm-hmm. is that positive versions of masculinity and femininity are not only for uh, biologically men and women, right? Mm. Um, because... So, for example, I I am very non-gender performative in that my career is in teaching, which is generally considered a female career. Mm -hmm. Specifically, I teach English, which is generally considered a female subject. I'm I'm grossly outnumbered um, in terms of, like, uh, uh, sex breakdown um, in my department and always have been. And I like to teach things like poetry and fiction and and i also did a lot of musical theater right so all of the things (laughs) yeah right and and so and i don't watch sports you know so all of the things that you would say are your stereotypical like male things i don't do and i still think i'm i'm a guy guy in a lot of ways you know um sure i i like to smoke a pipe and i like my bourbon neat you know so (laughs) like there's a handful there's a handful of things that are very guyish about me but there's also a handful of things which are extremely feminine about me what well, i think that and and i think my wife would agree that one of her favorite things that i do is that i will every couple of months i will write her a letter um and leave it somewhere where she'll find it right and this sure. is historically not necessarily feminine but our contemporary definition of male this is a very feminine thing to do right, right. um and so when we when we come up with positive definitions of things which are probabilistically going to be characteristic of more men or probabilistically going to end up being characteristic of more women, that we need a positive way of talking about those things because there are some women who are going to engage in a lot of that male behavior or stereotypically mm-hmm. or probabilistically male behavior. And there are some men who are going to engage more in that stereotypically feminine behavior and this is the new part is that that's totally okay. That doesn't make you less of a man or less of a woman. It just makes you less feminine or less masculine. But we have to kind of disassociate in the same way we've disassociated gender and sex as gender is socially constructed and sex is biologically constructed. I think sure. we have to disassociate the idea of being a guy or being a man and being purely or even a majority of a majority of you being masculine. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I think that to me, it begs the question a little bit, what is the point then of even saying something is masculine or feminine? Should we then just use different words if we're not assigning, um, you know, it's okay for women to be yeah. masculine and it's okay for men to be like, what's even the point is, aren't they just then these values? Like whatever, let's, let's pick one to be assertive is a masculine thing, right? That's controlled aggression, you know, why not, in, yeah. Why not call it way, aggressive right? and passive or something like that? As opposed well, to these I things... mean, why even say that it's masculine? Because if it's okay right. for women to be assertive, and it certainly is, although sure. socially there are still consequences, obviously right. for that. Mm-hmm. Um, if that's the only thing that makes it masculine versus feminine is that I don't have to suffer social consequences for my being assertive, then why even call it that? Is, it, is there any value in, you know, delineating them that way at all, or should we just throw that out of our lexicon and? forget it all completely well the, you know because that's different than saying it's bad to me like you can yes. still define them like you know sort them and say they're bad what if we say you know well there's bad and there's good still but you know we don't assign a 
any kind of gendered words to them in any sort of way. Right. And, and I would say that if in, in an ideal world where you and I could make prescriptions about the use of language, we would say yes, but I would all, <laughs> um, like we can throw those things out, but like, I don't think you would have chosen yeet. I would not have chosen yeet, but yet yeet is a thing. And you, maybe, maybe you would have. Right. And so, uh, because there are biological differences between men and women, which are going to result in men stereotype or men are going to probabilistically be more like, I need to stop saying that word, be more likely to display what traits we consider stereotypically masculine and women are going to be more likely to display traits that we consider stereotypically feminine. I think those labels are going to remain for a long time. Um, Until, until we get to the point of genetic or biological engineering that they become biologically irrelevant, I think that socially they're going to remain relevant. So the argument Mm. I don't think is around which words should we use, but rather in how we value those words, because we can change that, right? Mm. We can change how we value words or how we approach them via uh, uh, essentially usage campaigns, right? Um, 60 years ago, you and I probably would feel comfortable saying the N-word, right? Not because necessarily we were morally less good than we are now, but because the narrative we would have told about ourselves was a terrible white supremacist narrative, you know? Mm, yes. And and so we would have bought into that because you don't see the narratives you buy into almost necessarily. Mm-hmm. And, and then someone came along and said, this is a denigrating word and you can't say it anymore. And it became offensive and then people stopped using it. And that happened, uh, uh, concomitantly, I don't know what's the word I'm looking for. At the same time as there, there concurrently, there, there it is. That happened concurrently <laughs> with shifting attitudes about race, where people were like, "Oh my God, we've treated people terribly because of their race," and oops, right? Or people were like, <laughs> "You've treated me terribly because of my race. Please stop," right? Yes. So, so that happened at the same time. So I do think that it's 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 not a relevant. It's not a question of what would be ideal. It's a question of what's possible. I think it's possible to say. We're, we're going to value these terms differently. So a feminine guy can be equally as male as a masculine guy sure. and yet not display some of the same, same stereotypical traits. I think that's the place that we should be putting pressure because it's the most likely to change. That makes sense to me. I, you know, and just speaking of change, we've talked about negative narratives, not so much specifically, mm-hmm. but just the idea that there there are a lot of them that people buy into and that might be a better topic for a different episode would be specific negative male narratives and what to do to avoid right. them and where they've come from and all that <laughs> kind of stuff but just this yeah. idea about whether narratives have any value or not or if, you know that kind of thing i wonder then from what you're saying do we seek certain things out like are we, are we should we even try to define them because i think what i struggle with and i'm sure a lot of people do and man this is so true in an era we, we are in a good way more cognizant of the differences between people and the variance in human experience mm-hmm. and yeah. you know even if you are on the extreme outlier of likelihood now i have no idea the percentages right but if you are a transgender person whether you've gone through any kind of um, surgical or hormone procedures or whatever, but you, you identify as a transgender person, you are in the extreme minority, right? Right. right yeah. Yeah. Human experience. Okay. Um, we hear a lot about it, right? Which is a good thing because it's very eye opening and very, um, and it's more common probably than we would have thought before. And I'm sure, you know, as we, it becomes less of a social stigma then you know, people actually are okay with self-reporting it. Maybe it's not as uncommon as we mm-hmm. think, but it's still sure. going to be obviously in the vast minority. So yeah. to say all that, it's like, we're happy and we have these different varied experiences. Is it worth it at all to even try to construct these narratives because are they actually going to help that many people? Or is that even just going to reinforce the idea that whatever is normative is of more value? I may not be using the word normative, right? But whatever is more mm-hmm. likely yeah, to Yeah, whatever is more accepted or, or the, the probability is that it's more likely that that's better. Right. right, more of us are born where our gender and our biological sex line up. More of us um, in that basket then are also heterosexual, right? And so mm-hmm. does that part of it by constructing narratives? Are we just like unconsciously pulling all that into it and reinforcing that this is the only right, or maybe not even the only, but a better one? Because that is certainly, I think, still true in a lot of ways. That it's you know kind of these other 
human experiences that maybe don't fit into some of these stereotypical narratives or they mm-hmm. do but we've said that they don't right because right because we can make that happen socially right yeah well i mean there's i mean whether it's in fiction or just people you've known in real life like you know not every gay man is you know a character from will and grace you know yeah I, yeah not that there's any there are gay men that are like that right but you know what i'm saying so i mean you know like, that's an example and that's even within right the minority so like right but it's that that's super ingrained i need i need to tell a bad story about myself really quickly but i do also want to don't let me forget this i, w- I want I to answer your question about yeah narratives right whether or not it's they're useful um so i, I was in I, I i teach at the georgia state uh, it's a university in atlanta and I was in there and I'm uh, teaching a class and I was talking about weddings and there's a joke that I started making in like 2009 whenever I talk about weddings, which is very rarely, <laughs> right? And so I'm on autopilot and um, I'm talking about um, marriage equality. Sure. And I use the term gay marriage, which is already a little bit problematic. Mm. And then the next thing I say is, and I felt terrible for this after I apologized immediately afterwards, just to be clear. But I said, but all weddings are a little bit gay, right? I mean, look at how froofy and like ridiculous they are. Um, and <laughs> which, you know, on the, on the one hand, it's funny because it does play into the stereotype, the, the will and grace stereotype, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. You know, and so anytime you make a joke about a stereotype, especially which appears to be on its face at the expense of heteronormative men right to say that their sure. wedding was gay mm-hmm. right but the, the the subtext there is that you're accusing for you're first of all saying that gay is negative because heteronormative right. men would not want to be called gay and then you're also saying that gay is necessarily feminine which again it's it's not neither presently nor historically even though it's presented that way and after i i i just i went into complete panic mode afterwards i was like i can't believe those words came out of my mouth in front of people I don't know the sex. I don't know the sexual orientation of my students. I don't know if I have a student who is both gay and masculine and uncomfortable with his homosexuality because he's told he can't do that, right? So I felt, and I apologized profusely. I was like, I can't believe I did that. And anyway, so there there are negative attitudes uh, surrounding that, right? To your point about narratives, um, and I'm guilty of them. But that's that's the caveat. I'm guilty. Yeah, of, I'm trying. Right? I'm really trying, but I'm still we guilty. We all are. Right? Yeah. Uh, so to your point about narratives, um, so there's a, a, a story about um, a king who wanted a map that accurately reflected his kingdom. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this. It might be Grimm's no. fairy tale. It might not. Okay. No. And so he orders this map to be made, and it's supposed to be the largest map ever, like, you know, 50 feet by 50 feet. And it comes in, and he looks at the map. He says, this is a pretty good map. But then he goes outside, and he's like, but look, this hill is not on the map. So the map makers are like, well, yeah, but the hill's too small. We've got this whole mountain range on the map. What do you want this hill yeah. for? And the king says, make a better map. And so they build a map that's 500 by 500. And this process repeats itself until the king wants every blade of grass represented. And suddenly the map covers the entire land. Sure. So this is why it's, this will make sense in just a second. I think this is why we need narratives is because reality is actually way too complicated to talk about. Right. So like I'm wearing a shirt right now. Right. But that shirt is not a thing. It's actually a collection yeah. of, of thousands of threads which have been woven together in a complex pattern in order to produce something which appears to be a thing. And sure. I call it a thing, but the word shirt itself is a metaphor for a far more complex subject. So we need narratives to make sense of reality. But it's also true that we need to police our narratives to make sure that they are not misrepresenting a reality in a way that privileges us or that marginalizes someone else so we're never going to get rid of narratives because they're the only way to talk and every word is also a metaphor and every word is uh, um, an abstraction from a physical thing so anytime we're communicating we're relying deeply on narratives Mm. and and metaphor but it's important to police those carefully to make sure they don't become abusive yeah well i love that story because that is, I think, a perfect example of, and a very good articulation of why they are useful. Because, you know, a map is there to guide you, guide you, give you a general idea, but you're still, you know, at some point you're going to have to like walk the path that's in front of you, and you're like, oh, this tree has fallen down, or that road is mm-hmm. closed, or whatever, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, Which you know, that's in the area, individualism, right? 
Sure, yeah. <laughs> and in, you know, in the era of Google Maps, like we almost can kind of have that road, but even then, that's not always helpful. But I, you know, if you make a map that's as big as the kingdom, then that's just the kingdom, and it has it doesn't help you. And mm -hmm. if we make a narrative that encompasses every single aspect of reality, then that's just called reality. And now we're back where we started, and we've done nothing, right? And so we, if we cut up little slices of it or organize certain parts of it into these narratives, those obviously can coexist. I think just because reality exists that way. I mean, you talk about your shirt. All I'm thinking about is as a human being, right? You were a collection of, you know, if we want to go all the way down to subatomic particles, we can, right? But you are yeah. cells that are going to form particular tissues and organs that go together, and then you're this whole person, but you're also all these separate things that kind of work independently, and, you know, you're that kind of thing. So I think that's a really good point, and I, and I thank you for that because I think that, again, there's middle ground in these things, right? We can have narratives without saying there can only be these kind, right? Yeah, <laughs> or that yeah. We need no, we need no narratives, and I think – what you just talked about brings up, I think, probably the last real point I want to make on this. So I feel like I could talk about this forever. So, hey, maybe we've got our next two or three episodes <laughs> to kind of right. dig down deeper, answer a few unanswered questions or talk more specifically about our own narratives or something like that. I don't know. But this idea of when we decided we wanted to talk about toxic masculinity and just narratives in, in general and how that is an example of one and what do we want to do with it. Right. I yeah. uh, went to my wife, which for me, maybe not for everybody, um, but my wife is an amazing source of um, wisdom and intelligence, and she also happens to be an expert in her field. She's a marriage and family therapist, and so she has mentioned to me before, and because I'm a good husband and I listen when my wife talks um, more than she probably <laughs> thinks I do, which is a different failing, but not one of not listening. No, <laughs> is, that's, that's, uh, a, that's a personal failing of being Grant Overman. Right? Yeah, does it appear that I'm listening even though I, I, I probably, <laughs> or I might be, we should say. I won't even be as generous to say probably. But she's mentioned to me this thing, this tool in her therapist toolkit of narrative therapy. Yeah. And so I, I called her a little bit today and said, hey, walk me through this again. Maybe make, make sure I understand this better. And so narrative therapy is the technique of having your client speak about problems, um, internal struggles, um, something they're going through in an externalizing way. So instead of saying, I am depressed and therefore X, Y, and Z or whatever, you will say, my depression has this and it comes to me in this way and then I do that. And so you're building a narrative in these externalizing factors. It allows you to examine it um, from a little bit of a distance so it's not as maybe is immediately painful or scary to do so. Yeah. It allows you to see maybe the larger pattern, like we've been talk to, talking about, and things that can happen um, there and give you kind of, a, a again, a broader view, like your map you're talking about. And it also um, allows you to work through them in metaphor and in, mm -hmm. um, what's the word I'm looking for, in you know, workshopping or role-playing or something in, in right, the therapeutic right. relationship or even just in your own mind later, right? And we all do this constantly, right, where we imagine what's going to happen and we do it, and that's pretty concrete. But for me, the what I've come down on the usefulness of narratives came from listening to her talk about this. And and they can be broad or they can also be deeply personal. And this is an example of, a, example of a deeply personal one. But if you construct yourself a narrative that is useful to you and can guide you and you can examine yourself with a critical and honest eye, whether you are on the right path or doing the right things or you need help or whatever it is by externalizing these things and pulling them out and putting them into this structure that you've imposed on it, maybe, right? That's not maybe inherent in the world, but you've right. imposed on it. You give yourself a valuable tool for growth and possibly healing if that's what it yeah. needs yeah. or just a roadmap for maybe even how to interact with others. And it, I, again, something I think we should talk about at some point is – and you'd obviously be the expert on this is just, you know, literarily, is that a word? Yeah. In, in literature, <laughs> the, you know, heroes and villains and whatever, because she also got way technical on me and was talking about, you know, well, I, you know, take the part, this other therapeutic model and I combine them together kind of a little bit and use this idea where talk about the different parts of yourself and then put them in this narrative. And I'm like, well, that okay. just blows my mind, so right? That, that sounds I'm getting too far, but the idea yeah. here is that there's a usefulness at right. least on an individual level, mm -hmm. for having mm -hmm. a grand narrative like we talked about or some kind of meta-narrative. Your personal narrative comes from that, but it, 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 it then goes out into the world you experience and all the people you're in a relationship and the things you do daily. And that for you is a grand narrative, I would say, 
and even if it doesn't encompass all of society, although probably it would yeah, eventually. Yeah, it's it's, um, cer- it's certainly a per- it, it's a personal narrative which encompasses all the aspects of your life. And this to me is it's funny because it comes full circle. It's back to Jung, right? Who would argue that each of us are not whole individuals, but we're actual fragmented psyches that kind of negotiate. So when you talk about my depression anthropomorphizing your depression to talk about it like an individual is incredibly Jungian, right? And so then you can place these things within a narrative. And when you put them within a narrative, we know what happens in the story, right? Mm -hmm. We've, we've heard enough stories and this, and, uh, um, of the definitions of, of what makes someone human, I think one of the best, and I can't remember which theorist came up with this, but is, uh, humankind. They're the the animals who tell stories. Mm -hmm. That's what really sets us apart, Right. Because this, the, it's the stories that we tell about ourselves and about other people that let us make sense of the world. And if we're telling a really bad story about ourselves, and I think there are a ton of bad stories that we tell about ourselves, not just men, but like human beings right now, we're telling some sure. really bad stories about ourselves. Um, then that's going to grossly affect how we how we live our lives. So I I was not thinking of narrative therapy in the lines that you just explained it to me. Um I, the the way that you explained it made narrative therapy seem far more attractive to me, and I'm 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 a big fan of what you just explained. What I read about briefly today, um, I I didn't like, but that that I thought was that's incredible, right? To to sort of fragment your problems into pieces, turn them into characters essentially, and to talk about right. them as though you own them, and to make them things which you can move about narratively to figure out what they're doing to your life, right? Mind depression made me want to do this right and then my my weakness or my ill my my um contempt for someone made it easy to do that and then you can look at these pieces as harmful or beneficial and see what to what to bow down to or what to to allow to happen i think that's a that's an incredible application of something that to me begins in jung but i'm sure begins all over depending on where you are but i also think that we're getting a little long-winded and we should probably cut it here I yeah think. are no, we and that, are we at a stopping point yeah no i think i think we are i think we've established a good kind of base idea of what we're trying to get at right when we talk about these things we were trying to construct a narrative of masculinity yeah if for no one else then maybe just the two of us yeah um, yeah i i feel i feel better about framing it now i honestly i really sure. do Sure. yeah and so we can go and talk to a more specific topic in this context of how does this fit into the larger path that I am walking as a man myself in the roles I play within my relationship as a man. And then in guiding for me, my son, for you, son, daughter, both, neither is yet to be determined. Well, it's been determined probably. We just don't know it yet. <laughs> right. We don't um, know. <laughs> we, we don't know yet. Um, although do you guys, did you guys like make a bet? This is a total tangent, but I want to know, did you like bet? Do you know what you, like what you thought it was? We're asking people, we're be? asking people what they think. And each of us has, a, I would say a soft preference, um, but we don't know. Sure. Uh, and but I mean, and we're not you, making it, bets. You have some no, sort we did Weird gut feeling that like I think this is what it's gonna be. Yeah, I think I, I think that we we both have. I'll keep I'll play that one close to the chest to say we have the sure. gut feeling, and I'm not telling you what it is. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> I can talk about mine because it already happened. I had a gut feeling because I had a strong preference for a girl mostly because of the stuff we talked about in this episode or was like oh my god how do i not raise like a terrible horrible man beast because i don't even know what it means for me to be a man and i'm going to try to tell you yeah, like, I, I can tell you right from wrong kind of but right you know you everyone can, on the tv is yelling about someone this going and... for tight shirts and mini skirts you can just say no but <laughs> right well also i have sisters i think that's part of it too. Uh, like I, yeah. you know i have yeah. you know my i'm eight years older than my youngest sister jenna and so i, w- I can remember being around a little girl and what do you do with little girls better than I could have been? Cause I just was a little boy and I didn't know how to deal with anyone else other than myself and maybe not even myself very well. But I remember <laughs> talking to my middle sister, Jordan. And so I had a strong preference for a girl. I'm like, it's going to be a girl. I'm going to will it into the universe that I will have a girl. Right. And I was telling her and, um, first of all, I picked up the phone and she's like, you're pregnant, aren't you? And I'm like, I don't even know how you do this. Like <laughs> I must not call you enough is what happens. Right. Is the real reason. Um, I'm glad she didn't assume someone had died. You know, that's a, a positive thing. Uh, yeah. Pregnant. But we're talking about it. And she's just like, you're going to have a boy. I just know it, which doesn't mean anything. That, that is a baseless claim. Well, you but got, it you're 50-50, like yeah. right? So, sure. So yeah. I, my vote is just whenever anybody gets pregnant, because it's only going to happen like once a year, right? At the most. <laughs> just go hardcore and act like you know. And then half yeah. the time people will be like, how did you do that? You'd be like, I got an intuition. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. So she had that. and then, and then, then, But she said it and it became true in my mind. 
it was like it, <laughs> it, he will be a boy, you know, and and so it. I'm I'm very thankful for that because sure. I did not know that what I really wanted was a boy. I would. Well, I don't think I don't think you wanted a boy, and I don't think you wanted a girl. I think the truth is you wanted him, and that's the difference. Is that yeah. you you wanted the one you got right? That is yeah that I, that definitely I think that hits it on the head. Well, it's a good time to wrap up. We yeah, let's do it. again have laid a lot of good groundwork. So thank you everybody. You have blessed us by your all listening one of you. to our podcast. All yes. one, maybe is, even two. Which is probably just you and me later on listening to the sounds of our own voice, which I've always enjoyed. So We count as people too, so that's at least two. <laughs> we so do. we're probably going to get at least one or two more. So Thanks we're, you we're two. trending upwards right on that. But <laughs> Can't go down. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Two Dads Named Grant. My name is Grant Overman. And I'm Grant Vickery. And we will see you again soon. Thanks. Thanks.